0: Welcome to ASCP's podcast, Inside the Lab, where we discuss anything and everything that concerns today's laboratory professionals and pathologists. Hey, my name is Kelly
1: Swales, and I'm one of your co-hosts. I'm an ASCP certified medical technologist and a writer, and I work here at the Publications Department at ASCP.
0: My name is Dr. Loti Mulder, and I'm the Director of Leadership and Empowerment at ASCP, and I'm also one of your co-hosts.
1: So today we're gonna be talking about the impact of COVID-19 on community hospitals and MLS programs. We've got a couple of great guests lined up and I'm really looking forward to hearing what they
0: have to say. I'm excited to introduce our two guests today. Therese Abreu is an assistant professor of biological science at Heritage University in Toppenish, Washington, where she's also the director of a medical laboratory science program. She began her career as an educator while stationed in Europe with her husband. Her primary areas of teaching are leadership, immunology, serology, immunohematology, and phlebotomy. Ms. Abreu has a master's degree in health services management from Webster University, St. Louis, Missouri. Her academic research explored healthcare services available to the working underinsured. In addition, she loves to travel and learn by being involved. She models for new professionals the importance of being an active member of professional organizations, thus bridging the gap between students and the professionals. She currently serves on AACP's Diversity and Inclusion Committee. Dr. Dana Altenberger is the medical director of the laboratory at Carl Broman Medical Center. She chairs numerous hospital committees and is the current vice president of the medical staff. She currently serves on AACP's Choosing Wisely Committee. Okay, before we get
1: going, uh, I just want to take care of a little bit of housekeeping. We're offering CME and CMLE for listening to this podcast in the ASCP online store. The American Society for Clinical Pathology is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. ASCP designates this enduring material for a maximum of one AMA, PRA, Category 1 credit. Physicians should only claim the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in the activity. So, now that we've got the housekeeping and the introductions out of the way, uh, I'm just going to dive right into some questions. So, Dr. Altenberger, we've seen the impact of coronavirus on hospitals all over the country. I mean, it's in the news every day, we can't really escape it. The majority of the coverage seems to highlight bigger hospitals and bigger cities. What's unique about the challenges that community hospitals and laboratories, and by community hospitals, I mean, they're generally independently run facilities that serve a local demographic. What sort of challenges are you guys facing with this crisis?
2: Well, I think we're facing a lot of the challenges that even big and small hospitals are facing, you know, not enough tests, not enough PPE, not enough swabs, not enough media, What's kind of unique about us is we're in central Illinois, and it's in a city of about 100,000 people, but we haven't had a lot of COVID positivity. So when they're distributing out you know, limited resources, we don't get a lot because we don't have a lot of positivity, so we're um, constantly facing uh, testing shortages. So do you conduct your own COVID testing? We have some in-house automated molecular testing. But uh, right now there's a national shortage. So we do not really get enough to run on all patients. So we use those in only certain situations that need a stat result in less than an hour. All of our pre-op testing is sent to another facility that does um, the PCR testing for us.
0: And does that create any additional challenges having to send them out somewhere else?
2: Yeah. So the turnaround time is still very good compared to national turnaround times but it's still not quite what our uh, medical staff are used to. They're used to um, getting test results, you know, same day. And um, having the delays has made some scheduling issues and some unhappy physicians, but we're trying our best to um, meet the needs of the physicians and the patients. I'm going to jump in here with a comment and a question. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like
1: it's, it's been a trend, I think, for several years. I One might even say mm-hmm. decades to do like centralized testing with bigger with bigger hospital systems or with smaller community hospitals, just sending all of their, their laboratory testing to another place, which, you know, I think that generally speaking, there's always issues that arise with that, but we're really feeling that crunch now. You know, it's different, you know, having to wait a day for a routine CBC is different than having to wait a day for a COVID test result.
2: Right. So we've been um, very lucky where we are that we've been able to maintain our own in-house microbiology. That's really helped us. That's key. Yeah. Yeah. And now um, with being a part of a different system, we're bringing a lot of testing back into our lab that was once centralized somewhere else. And there was a 24 hour turnaround time on CBCs and stuff like that. So I think the physicians have been very happy with that. So I think that's making it extra hard is them having to wait 24, 48, 72 hours for a COVID result. We do have, um, it's been hard because especially for the automated molecular test, there are no tests. I kind of joke that, um, unless they want to go rob the place, there's really no way for us to get more testing. Right. It's not, it's not a matter of them speaking up. We can't get them.
1: I want to jump off on that. Actually. Uh, we talk about a lot has been said in the national media with, like, there's not enough tests or there's, you know, not enough whatever. So can, can we expound on that? Because I feel like most of our audience is going to know what we're talking about. But if, you know, a layperson were to, like, stumble upon this podcast and be like, I'm really interested in learning more about this. Let's yeah. talk a little bit about uh, those supply chain issues.
2: Yeah, it's been very frustrating when you read some national media and they try to say there is not a testing shortage or there's not a shortage of PPE when you feel it very much every day. There are not enough tests to go around. We could do a couple hundred tests in-house on the system that we have, but we're basically limited to less than 10 a day, mm. and we're only using those in emergency situations. So there is a testing shortage, and there is just no way for us to get more. Well, you said you use about 10 tests a day for emergency situations, and what qualifies as an emergency situation? We have certain criteria for patients that need an in-house rapid test, is what we're calling it, for the automated molecular test. Those are patients that are going back to a nursing home, there are patients that are um, getting admitted to a mental health facility, and uh, patients that can't be discharged without a COVID test.
1: Oh, I see. So they're like leaving the hospital and going to a group situation, we need to make sure they're clean before they do.
2: Okay. That's pretty much it. But we have a pretty good uh, testing site set up for the swabbing. So we have patients come in uh, 72 hours before their procedure and they get it. And then once they're negative, they can have their surgery. So you know what, I I think I'm going to transition a little bit
1: to you, Ms. Abreu. Obviously, you know, and we've been talking about some of the issues, a lot of the media attention has been on logistic issues and not enough tests. And that's Obviously, very legitimate concerns, but not a whole lot of attention has been paid to the educational side of this, sort of like our pipeline of new new techs that we're we're training in MLS programs. So, Ms. Abru, how has COVID-19 impacted student training, and how were these students used during this crisis?
3: So I'd like to just go back a minute before I answer that in regard to what Dr. Altenberger was saying about the test shortages. One of the things that's really concerning to us in the education field is these people that are talking about how they're going to test all their students when they come back. And I thought, okay, well, that's that day. And then what about all the rest of the days after they're exposed? I don't know how that's going to be possible. And I don't see how it's going to be helpful at all either. And I know um, it's very frightening for us, you know, educators. But anyway, back to your question. So what happened was is, you know, when everything broke out, uh, Washington was one of the first places, you know, we got a notice from the hospital, you know, at four o'clock in the afternoon, all the students are out. We have a physician assistant, students, nursing students, and MLS students. And I thought, oh, no. And then I also thought, well, they're going to need us. Back, So I decided I'd ask the students, you know, well, if they decide they need some help, would you be willing to go back? And before Monday came, I heard from them, we need them back. And we were able to keep the MLS students in the institutions because we didn't need the PPE. That was the biggest problem. The PPE, there just wasn't enough. And we were really worried because we had the big outbreak here. And so uh, the students were allowed, they went back to the lab and they volunteered and they said they wanted to be there. I was really excited about that. Of course, we were frightened for them and they were frightened too, but they could see right away how needed they were and how important it was, and this is why they signed up for being in medicine and they were very excited. The first thing that they did is they had a tents, uh drive up tents for sampling. But actually in the beginning there was some testing happening. Um they were being screened for flu and so they ran uh Sophia a point of care machine to see if they had the flu. So that then they could save the COVID test if that turned out to be positive. So they did that at the beginning. And then they kind of supervised that the collection wasn't just the nares, but of the nasopharyngeal. That was an important part of not wasting any tests. We can't afford any mistakes. And then they labeled them. They kept everything together so that nothing got mixed up and they kept the samples and bagged them. And then they were runners to get them back to the lab so that they could be used. After we kind of calmed down with that part, then when testing came into the laboratory, they were able to take them out to the floor whenever they were needed in the ED or or wherever somebody wanted a sample so that the samples, the swabs and the viral transport media were not all over the place. They were policed very carefully by the lab because of the limits that we had so few and we couldn't afford to waste any and uh, supplies were so limited. So they did that for a while. And then they also, towards the end, after these little hospitals, when they can't do surgeries and they can't do the normal things that create a cash flow for them, they had to start letting people stay home. The administration furloughed, HR furloughed, and then some of the techs, some of the lab directors and stuff, they were staying at home. And so um, the students were able to pick up some of the extra work that the techs had they had been in the labs for months and so they knew how to load analyzers unload analyzers they can't release any results but they certainly can monitor the flow and get stats going and things like that and do maintenance and support the technologists that were busy trying to validate new technology for testing
1: yeah it sounds like that they were almost like instrumental whenever things really kind of hit the fan early in the year
3: i think they were i i was banned right away, so I haven't been able to go in and see them, but I asked them to write a reflection and send it to me every week so I could kind of watch their morale and, and kind of see how they were doing and make sure they were okay, and I made sure to respond personally to each one, and if I felt anybody was kind of going off the rails a little bit, I would refer them for some extra help, but it was really important to watch out for their well-being. It's a kind of a scary situation, and, and they were there with the patients, so not with them. You know, we, we had to stop lobotomy, so they didn't get to be with them, and they really missed that. As much as they whined, they missed it, <laughs> they couldn't do it.
1: Yeah, as much as everybody, you know, hates having to get their 50 sticks in or whatever, it's, yeah, you do kind of miss the direct patient contact yeah. whenever you're, you're done with that rotation.
0: Mm -hmm. So what are are some of the, you said that you, they were writing reflection papers to you every week and that you were reading them or responding to them, which I think is a great, just a great support that you are providing. What were some of the the trends that you saw? Like what were some of the biggest challenges that you read about through their reflections?
3: So they were worried about taking COVID home and uh, they were worried about the stress that the technologists were under and that they were adding to that. But then when they really saw that they could do things and that they were helpful, they felt like they were a part of history, that they were getting the education of a lifetime, that they were very lucky because so many uh, kids weren't allowed to finish and they got delayed. And so that was a concern because they've got debts and things like that that they're worried about. They felt like that they were experiencing exactly what it was that they went into medicine for. And Dr.
0: Altenberger, do you do you have an impression or an idea of what some of the main emotional or challenges were among your staff?
2: Well, we were pretty much shut down for a couple of weeks right when it hit because no surgeries were happening and they were trying to keep patients out of the hospital. So we kind of went down to weekend staffing. But now it's, hard because of all the send out testing that we have with COVID, it's been stressful. It's been hard. And it's you know, especially when we switched systems, July one, two. So we were trying to do all this stuff with um switching and on top of COVID, it's been rough.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
1: You would say that the overall morale of the staff is affected?
2: I don't know, overall. I mean it's sort of you know with the lab it's you have good days and you have bad days and I think it's starting to even out. But I know some of my more uh, resilient people, I can kind of see the stress on their face, which you kind of check in with them.
3: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. The students are really upset about what's happening in the news. You know, why aren't people being safe? It makes them very upset. And they've uh, matured very quickly because they're seeing the results of what happens when you aren't careful. We have just gone over 10,000 infected in a 200,000 population. Our hospital has 250 beds. Oh: so geez. When the COVID numbers jumped up. We did not have the staffing, the acuity care staffing to take care of them, and we had to start shipping them over to Seattle. So the students were very, very upset about that, and they were very unhappy to hear that people weren't willing to do their part.
0: Yeah, I think that's been the one of the challenges that we've just seen all across the country where, you know, it seems like half of the people are – very strict, and you know another group of people are attending parties and social distancing or wearing masks to the extent that is recommended, so you see this very dichotomous
3: environment everywhere and that is a really, really big concern for educators for the MLS educators and any um, you know while they're out there enjoying themselves and everything because they feel invincible they're coming to campus and the people on campus can then be, you know, affected by their decisions. And this is, this is pretty terrifying, and it's making it go, it's going to be very difficult for us to get educators that will take the risk if they can't personally, if they have somebody at home that can't be exposed, if they're a caregiver for a family member. I, it's really very frightening for us in education.
1: Yeah, it's such a can of worms. I mean, this is touching every aspect of our society. Yeah, for sure. I want to kind of transition and Miss Abru, this is probably more of a question for you, but uh, Dr. Altenberger, I think this will definitely affect you guys, you in the laboratory as well. So you can both feel free to answer sort of, we've always, once again, it's one of those things that is nothing new in the laboratory professions. We've all, we've just perennially had staffing shortages, Mm -hmm. you know, for years, decades. It's always been an, it's been an issue for a long time. Ms. Abreu, can you talk about how potentially not having students graduate on time, how that might affect like the pipeline to the staffing? Did you see that this year? Do you anticipate seeing that next year? Is that
3: something that we need to be concerned about? Absolutely. It's a major concern. We haven't, don't have enough programs to put out the graduates that we need in the medical lab science. And now that we have all of this more advanced kind of testing protocols and uh, methodologies, we need the scientists even more and you can't you know there's all this virtual learning but this is a a psychomotor skill set you can watch a video all you want to but i sure as heck wouldn't want that surgeon cutting on me when he's finished watching the videos You know, you have to at some point do it, and what's happening is that the labs, because of the crunches that they're dealing with, they don't have time for the students, and so they don't want to take them. And without that experience, managing workflow, working in a team, dealing with our providers, and supporting the nurses, you just can't learn that through videos. And so we're very concerned We were lucky because the major front end had already been completed this particular year. The students were already familiar in the labs and all of our labs being smaller labs. They weren't as concerned about keeping the students because they were already embedded. But this next year now, there's a lot of concern. Nobody knows what's going to happen. Right now, they're not even open all the way in some cases. And so they don't see any way that they can take students. So how we're going to finish the students, I do not know. Now nacl has been really good about, you know, as long as we get the education in, but the labs want high trained people, especially in the small communities, because they have to have so much responsibility right out of the gate. Mm -hmm. And if they're not getting a chance to try this first and build their confidence and build their skill and actually see what it looks like to be in the lab, they're not going to be able to do that. And so even if we're able to get graduates through and keep our accreditation and they can pass the BOC, they're not going to be the high-speed techs they've been in the past if we can't get that time in the lab. So. We're really concerned about that. We're trying to do things on our simulated campus lab, but that's not made to do everybody at once. And so a program that was a year, an accelerated program, maybe won't be able to be completed in a year. And this is a huge financial burden on students because they already had to pay for their degree. And now this is beyond that sometimes. In our area, you know, we're we're in an agricultural area. We have migrant families. We've got students trying to attend classes in closets so they can get some quiet time or parking lot. So we've had to bump our Wi-Fi, you know, so that they could be in the grass and they don't have laptops. They don't have technology. It's been some issues, and it's hard for the family support because the family, they, a lot of them are first generation going to school, and the family can't understand why they can't be helping out in the field and why they need to spend this money. So it's making things really hard. And then they're not learning about the masking and the symptoms and stuff because they're not watching mainstream news. They don't get the newspaper. And that tracer thing is very frightening for them because of deportation issues.
0: Can you talk a little bit more about that impact? Because I agree that that's been a huge concern of certain groups where uh, contact tracing, you know, that they're not necessarily, that they don't necessarily feel comfortable coming forward or getting tested because of that potential fear. Can you talk a little bit more about that?
3: Yes, absolutely. There's a lot of misinformation in some of our groups. They're very hard workers. They're essential to the food supply that is dwindling. I mean, there were five pears on the shelf in the grocery store today, and we have got trees all around us. But anyway, I guess they're not right right now. But yes, they are fearful because every person matters and they don't have a lot of money. So going and getting testing, they didn't understand that they could go for free. In some cases, they couldn't, you know, because tests are so limited where we're at. If you didn't have all the signs and symptoms of COVID, they weren't even going to talk to you and you had to make an appointment. You had to have a cell phone so they could tell you when to pull up to the Tent, and you know sometimes those things aren't available. And then one of my students one one time commented the car was full of people when they pulled up. Maybe one person was getting swabbed, but the car was full of people. So you know the cultural things make it harder for certain groups to get on board it's not that they don't want to they just don't know and the information isn't coming to them we're working harder on that but it does make it so that they're uh, frightened to come to school but at the same time they can't learn at home either because of that situation and so yes and then ask who were you with and you know and we have those ice flights coming through here yeah
1: yeah all of that is A lot about diversity and inclusion and underrepresented minorities and areas, that's a big discussion whenever it comes to COVID. And all of the issues that you've highlighted, it's, yeah, it's absolutely, it's just bringing everything to light. I mean, these issues that were already there, this has just made them worse.
3: I think. Right. And they there's no place for them to go to isolate. The workers are in special housing and they're bust all together to the grocery store. They're bussed to the fields. They live in like dorm situations. You know, where are they going to go? And if they get sick, then how is their family going to eat?
1: So, Dr. Altenberger, let's ask you the same question, like how this is affecting staffing for you guys. And like the MLS education, are you concerned about getting new graduates? Are you concerned about Training them, training your, the folks that are in college now?
2: We take a couple students a year, and we hire almost every student that comes through our lab. But I haven't heard what they're planning on doing for this year yet. I am not sure. It's a good source of staffing for us. It's a good source of new hires. And did you have to make any changes to meet the demands for COVID testing? No, because we were down staffed. A lot of people were furloughed. Mm. So we weren't short. We were the opposite. We went to basically weekend staffing for a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm.
0: And then, and at what point did people still being fur- furloughed or are you now back to, to your previous capacity in terms of staff? We
2: were, we are at our previous capacity plus some um, with the new transition to the new system. So everybody's um, very busy and very overworked right now and, we're hiring some more people. We're able to hire some people. We already have people lined up for those positions, which is very lucky for us. And like I said before, um, the major issue now is our send-out testing with all the COVIDs that have to go out.
0: And then this is another question for both of you as well. What sort of budgetary concerns did the COVID pandemic bring to light? The you know, laboratory supplies, PPE, waste disposal, all those changes over the last six months. How has it affected you? And i start with you, Dr. Altenberger.
2: I asked my lab director how our budget looked after COVID, and she basically said it blew up the entire budget. (laughs) So uh, we were able to sort of limit some PPE uses with N95s, with having one phlebotomist draw all the patients in isolation. So that's been nice. Otherwise, I'm not really sure. I can't really talk about specifics because I don't handle that. They miss a break?
3: So, uh, when this happened, and the labs got to the point where they didn't have enough staff and they were too busy trying to validate to have the students, they told us they were sending them back to us all of a sudden. And so, overnight, I had students coming back to a closed campus, so I had to get permission. Then I had to get something to do temperatures, and I had to get masks, and I had to get disinfectant wipes, and you know, all of those kinds of things. So... We, I and my faculty member, scoured the town, we split the town, and we just cold called and visited everything. I found one place that sold two masks for $15, two little disposable kind of masks for 15 bucks, and you could only buy one pack, and I needed more than that. So I went and got my husband and sent him in there, and so we got some masks. We ordered gloves and coats and things, and that was back a couple months ago. They're just now coming. They've been back ordered for months. And so I actually got a thermometer, one in town for years. It was for babies. I actually finally found something. But yeah, things have blown up. Prices are through the roof but you just can't get it for example i always would start my new cohort with the stuff that you keep in your pocket as a tech you know and it, they would get little bottles of hand sanitizer because i teach phlebotomy well those cost 99 cents a bottle little hand now they're three dollars and 79 cents a piece and i have to check them very carefully that they're not some kind of you know toxin or that they're even you know useful at all the last ones I bought are like coconut cherry or something. <laughs> Who needs that? I don't know. At least so they will smell delicious.
2: <laughs> well, and you know, too, part of it is we sort of pride ourselves with me being on Choosing Wisely about sort of limiting tests and unnecessary tests. But at this point in time, you can't say anything's unnecessary. You sort of have to help them. And if they want to order a test on a patient, Because there's just so much literature coming out about D-dimers and and like whatever they want, they can have it. So that's sort of blown up our testing budget as well. All these other ancillary tests, you know, and we can't get gonorrhea testing. Thankfully, our flu testing isn't on our automated molecular platform yet. Because that's going to be, who knows if we're going to be able to get those. It's all these downstream effects. Yeah, we ran out of wipes in the hospital. So we've had to go to like a liquid with rags. So that creates a lot more work for housekeeping. And we've had to transition our hand sanitizer from a foam to a gel. It's all these downstream effects that you don't think about. Thankfully, we have not run out of PPE. We've been really lucky.
0: Yeah, seriously, very lucky. Yeah, and now, so, you know, lately in the news, it's been talked about the N95 masks and that now a lot of places are no longer allowing people to wear them. Has that happened at your institutions
2: already as well or not yet? Well, we, when this first started, we were rationing. So N95s were only given a certain allotment to certain departments every day anyway. So if you didn't need one, you didn't get one. So we've been good from that. We have level ones, two and threes here, and then you go up to the N95. So we've been following guidelines for what you need and trying to give them only exactly what they need. But again, that's a lot of work on supply chain. Yeah.
1: Yeah, for sure. Do you guys do any of your TB testing, TB cultures there in-house or
2: do you send them all off? We send that off.
1: Okay. Yeah. Then never mind. My question was going to be, so what are you doing with techs that are working with Yeah. With known TB cultures and, and the QC and stuff because you got to wear an N95 and and yeah. uh, just, I mean, regular, that's that's just your
2: protocol. And of so that stuff, uh, we only have a level two hood. We don't have a level three hood, so we can't oh, do a lot okay. of that stuff anyway. Yeah, not so not
1: as big of a concern for you. And this question I think is kind of for both of you. What sort of support would you guys need? Like, what do you guys need from your administration? What do you need from the community? Like, what support do you need that you're maybe not getting as much as you could?
2: Our administration has been great. They've been helping us handle a lot of the questions about COVID testing, dealing with a lot of the testing shortages that we have. They've been frontline on that. When this very first started, we had incident command twice a day. So uh, my lab director would be on those calls twice a day, kind of asking, what do you need? Where are we? Uh, What's the census like? How's the ICU looking? So that's been very good. Um, Basically, all we need is more tests and swabs and media, just like everybody else. It's just that simple. Unfortunately, very difficult.
3: And Ms. Abreu? Yes, so what we need is the support of the labs. To hang in there with us, and still help with training the students. That's a real important thing. But I do want to say that for all of us out here, what the professional organizations like ASCP and ASCLS and some of the other ones are doing has been phenomenal. I mean, really, we are getting messaging constantly. We're sharing that with everybody. We're learning so much. So there's such an information overload, and so much. Crap! That we have to have a trusted source, a trusted source, and we don't have time to filter it all. And you all are doing that, and God bless you for it.
1: (laughs) Awesome, thank you.
3: And
0: what are some some other ways that communities have responded? I mean, Mr. Bro, you talked about the larger uh, pathology and laboratory medicine organizations. How have some other communities responded to the current challenges and uh, providing you all with support that you needed?
2: You know it has been really nice? Our literal community, during the outbreak, they'd send us food and treats, <laughs> and that really helped with the morale of the lab. There were a lot of signs about how we appreciate healthcare workers, and that really meant a lot, actually.
3: And Mr. Berg? I don't know about that. I know that the students in some of their reflections have mentioned that, that they did get some food. And I've seen that, but, but otherwise, you know, I'm at home, so I don't, I don't get a lot of that. I know I've appreciated some of the free things that have come across about resiliency and burnout and being careful about that. I do have, um, healthcare workers in my family, nurses on the front lines. And, and so when you don't just think about yourself and you think about what can you do for somebody else, it helps it helps to feel like you're being able to do something. And so when a uh, joint commission had some kind of a thing, I think that I watched, I shared that with others. And I felt uh, I shared it with the wives of my uh, family members that um, I have some nurses, male nurses. And you know, that that's been very, very helpful. I think we have to remember that these are people. And when you see on the television about these nurses talking about how they seen, the uh, amount of deaths that they would normally see in their whole career in one day or in a couple weeks. I mean, we have to look out for them. This is something about the workforce that's going to really impact us. And one of the reasons why we're so concerned about our education programs is the burnout from the people that are dealing with what's going on now. If they get out, we're going to have a huge gap And we already, like right now, I got to see my doctor finally by Zoom. And so there's going to be a lot of people who were on regular care that needed to go for regular care, but got afraid and didn't and didn't get their medicine and let that go because of money situations or fear of going out. You know, there's going to be a lot more sicker people soon that are going to need a lot of care. So we do need to look out for everybody's uh, emotional well-being and um, the things that have come have been very helpful for that. And I've shared that with the students because I told them, you know, this is one thing you can do to give back is to be kind, be nice, be supportive, and say thank you.
0: And how how long do you both think that we will feel the impacts of this pandemic? You know, clearly I mean the pandemic is not over, we're, we're in the midst of it still, but even if a vaccine would come in, you know, the next few months and, and everything would kind of peter out, which hopefully will happen sooner rather than later. What do you think the long-term implications are?
2: Gosh, I don't know, but I don't think it's going to be um, before flu season. And I'm very nervous about that. I think I mentioned it already, but you know, a testing of symptoms and isolating patients, and it's going to be interesting.
1: Yeah, yeah. I know that early on, uh, some of my former colleagues that are still on the bench said that they had set up basically a, a testing algorithm. It's like, if you're coming in with flu-like symptoms, we test you for flu first. And if that's negative, we definitely test you for COVID. And if it's, yeah. we might even, depending on what your symptoms are, we might test you for COVID, even if it's still positive. Because that I think that's a big concern moving forward is that you'll have patients
2: that have both. Yeah. Especially if you're staying positive for COVID for a long time too. Gosh, it's just we just don't have enough information really about it's just been very strange for us because we can't trust the testing, some of it. And you have physicians asking you, What does this mean? And you know, you can't always trust a negative test depending on the platform that it was performed on and you know, the quality of the sample has so much to do with the test results. It's been really hard because they're so used to us saying this test is good. Trust the test. And we can't see that right now.
1: I do another podcast for, for lab medicine. And I, one of the authors had written a paper basically about the level of like, basically how much can you trust the test right now? And can you use it for surveillance or whatever? And uh, I made the comment that it's almost, it's a good thing that they, they trust us. Right. Because we, we work so hard to make sure every test we turn out is right. And we we drill into people the right test on the right patient at the right time. And like, we're good at what we do. So 99.9% of the time, if you get a test result, you can trust it. And now we're saying, Oh, Hey, wait, this is new. You know, all of these platforms are still really new. The tests are really new. Some companies are better at others. Yeah. Their antigen tests or whatever. And so it's so, I can really understand why it's frustrating for physicians, but also frustrating for lay people. But I sent something to the lab and I should just have the right answers. Like, yes, you're right. You should. But here's some reasons why this might not be the case. And that is yeah. so frustrating because you have to do everything on the fly so fast. In the middle, you're putting out a
3: fire while you're standing in the middle of it in a lot of ways. And then the public doesn't trust it because of that. And so then they feel like they're being fooled. And I'm very concerned about the people that are anti-vaccine. What are they going to do? Because, yeah, it's not going to work if we don't all get on board about it. And these are concerns. And we're still wondering about whether or not the antibody is going to be protective. I know my students are very, very excited about giving the convalescent plasma They've trained in the blood banks, so they do that. But they also have been going and donating so that they could do it.
2: Oh, that's great.
3: Yeah. But none of yeah. them are positive.
0: Yeah, I think yeah. this is a glimpse in the world without vaccinations. You know, this is, this yeah. is how it would be, how easily things can spread. Dr. Altenberger. Hmm?
2: Well, we still have some people within this community and some of the outlying communities that still think it's a hoax. And trying to open back up and, you know, not, we talked about this earlier, people not wanting to mask and not wanting to socially distance. We have a lot of people, even when we were shut down, they're traveling to other States to go to family gatherings and parties. And it's been very frustrating because they haven't seen it with their own eyes. They don't believe it exists. Right. And you hope that they don't see it, but yeah, I don't know. When I was reading too, that it was
0: about that that kind of, very similar to what we talked about earlier that it contributes to the level of burnout. I was reading a story about um uh, this was a nurse from I think he was from Texas but he got, he traveled to New York to help out during you know when it was really bad there and after 3 4 months he went back and then all his friends and family thought it was a hoax and they didn't really believe it and that this cost not only was he already burned out Uh, and having a really hard time emotionally from everything that he experienced in New York, but he said it was so much harder coming back and then being confronted with so many people who basically didn't believe his experience. It increased his burnout uh, so significantly, which is really just frustrating.
3: So Loti, I think what we need to really think about doing next is to be prepared for a post traumatic stress disorder in all of our healthcare workers. We need to start working on that right now. I was actually just about to say those very, very
1: words. you know, obviously, I still have a lot of colleagues who uh, are in the laboratory. I'm friends with a lot of nurses I'm friends with a lot of doctors and I have a very big fear that after this is all kind of said and done and and it's settled down, that we'll have one a mass exodus of people that are just gonna be like you know what i'm I'm just gonna go do another." Thing I'm gonna get out of the lab, get out of healthcare. I'm gonna go be a consultant or something. Mm -hmm. So I I I have a fear that that will happen, and I have a fear that we're gonna have a whole lot of PTSD. Yeah,
0: because I think so much for those like emotional traumas. Like once you're in it, clearly you're experiencing it while you're experiencing the the traumatizing event. But it's also so much as, as soon as you have like a pause or a moment to really reflect yes. on what happened that it all catches up with you. So absolutely agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. We need to watch out. We need to watch out for our people. Absolutely.
1: So this has been a really great conversation. I want to thank you both for agreeing to do this.
3: Miss Brew. Again, I want to thank the organization, the professional organizations for all of their support. It's meant a lot. I know, I don't know if you guys hear that from us enough, but I just wanted to let you know that we are hearing you and we do appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank yeah. you. Well, thank you both so much for
0: participating in this fantastic discussion. Um, I think we all learned a lot. I know Kelly and I did. So this was this incredibly interesting. And thank you. I want to take a second
1: to remind our listeners to uh, tell your friends, tell your colleagues about the podcast. You can subscribe through your favorite podcast aggregator and uh, so you don't miss future episodes.
0: And finally, don't forget that you can receive CME and CMLE credit for listening to our podcast by looking for Inside the Lab in the AACP store on our website, www.acp.org.